Would you take your Bible, either digitally or in printed form, or in your memory, and let's turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke 15. The Spirit of the Lord is in this place. Before we get into the text, all children through fifth grade are now invited to be a part of Sunday school just for you. There is a uh, teacher standing in the back of the auditorium to take you to your class. And uh, I don't see anyone getting up and leaving. But we actually had folks in the nursery, little ones, last week. And it was a blessing. My own grandkids were here. And that was a sweet, sweet thing. Luke 15, verses 10 to 24. And a Native American named William Leastheat Moon, when he lost his wife and his job, decided to pack up his Ford van and discover America. He said he wanted to go to a place where change did not mean ruin. He wanted to travel the blue highways. Now, if you look at an atlas, those big interstates are yellow or red, but he wanted to go to places that most people did not visit, like nameless Tennessee, dime box Texas, scratch ankle Alabama, why not Mississippi? And even in California, I go, which is right down the road from no-go, California. <laughs> Actually, it's really oh-no, California. And as he went to these places, he said he was discovering the real heart of America. But there's a young man in our story today who traveled the blue highway to the big city, and it became a highway of blues and not happiness. He's called the prodigal son, and today we will look at him and how he asked a very significant question. What's a guy like me doing in a place like this? Now, next week, we're going to look at the older brother in this story. Jesus begins with three parables, very famous parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. He is answering the charge of the Pharisees who look down their long noses because he receives sinners and ate with them. Thank God he does. And there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. But the problem is, this young man did not travel the highway of holiness, as the Bible says. The lost sheep was lost, but he knew where the shepherd was. The lost coin was inanimate and had no idea who it was or where it should go to get saved. But the son, the lost son today, was lost, but knew he was, and knew where to be to find mercy and receiving. 
Luke 15 is God's lost and found department. The word lost is used eight times in this one chapter. You may be not unsaved, but lost in sense of usefulness to the Lord or away from the Father's presence. We've been asking questions and making statements based on the very simple word, whatever. And today, whatever has alienated you from the Father, repent of it. Just do it. Let's stand to honor the reading of God's Word. And he said a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that land, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. You may be seated. The first time this young man asked the question, what's a guy like me doing in a place like this? He rebelled against the father. Now, this early part of our story is in three scenes. And the drama begins in the home, in the country. And it begins with discontent that moves into desire and ultimately drifting away. Amazingly, this young man asked for his share of the estate, the property. He was impatient for the death of his dad. And that's what sin is, really. It longs for the death of God where we can do our own thing. And this is why Paul said, all seek their own, not the things that are of Jesus Christ. Now, this is an amazing request because uh, to, <clears throat> for the father before he has even died, 
to bring his will into effect. It means he is giving the right of disposition and the right of possession. Sometimes that might happen, but never in the realm of disposition, because it would mean that this, uh, this dad would have to sell off land and cattle and sheep, everything, just to give this young man his share of the estate, to turn it into cash and get a fix of pleasure. I think he, he was out of the farm or the ranch, and maybe he was just sick and tired of being bored, driving that tractor all day, on the hood of his pickup Saturday night at Dairy Queen. Now, this isn't mentioned in the Bible, but I'm just saying if he was alive today, he may have been really bored with church. Perhaps he saw his parents' faith as two sizes too big, impossible to live up to, or two sizes too small. It was too restricting. And so he comes and he makes this outrageous demand, and it's he doesn't care uh, how it will affect the family. He carefully avoids use of the word inheritance, because that word in the context of that day would mean that he would take responsibility to defend the honor of the family, representing them in village functions, overseeing the estate and his share of the property and of all of the livestock. It would mean that he would help solve family quarrels with this sense of responsibility. But he carefully avoids that word, and he simply wants to gather everything into cash. He was drifting away, though. He was discontented with where he was and inwardly rebellious against authority. In another church, a young man came to me one time. He said, <clears throat> Pastor, I'm, I'm tired of my parents always telling me what to do. Now, he was 18 years old. And I said, well, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to join the Marine Corps. I said, you're in for a rude awakening. <laughs> Somebody else is going to tell you what to do. And this young man wanted to throw off all restraints, but he was drifting away in his mind long before he asked for the money. The Bible says, pay close attention to what you have heard, lest you drift away from the truth. Hebrews 2.1. In 1 Timothy 6.10, it says we can wander away from the faith. Why? Because we are like Proverbs 14.14, 14, which speaks of the backslider in heart, who will have his fill with his own ways. He'll get satisfied. Have you ever gotten all you thought you wanted, but you didn't want what you had? You will have a fill of your own ways. You'll be sick and tired of how it has turned you into the wrong person. But this young man doesn't know that yet. 
He breaks the relationship. He breaks his parents' heart. And then he goes to the distant land. The old King James, which I love, also says he went to the far country. Second scene, it's in the city. He establishes a reputation of generosity, which is the highest of virtues in the Middle East. He throws big parties. The drinks are on him. He takes care of the tab. He buys his friends. He buys whatever pleasure he wants. But then suddenly something happens. A famine arises in the land, perhaps a severe depression. And he's all out of money. He's spent his money. And the word that is used in the scripture was used of the scattering of enemies dead on a battlefield. The sowing of seed that was scattered out or the winnowing of grain. And then also of throwing away your money, wasted, for things that don't satisfy. And that's what he had done. He was out of money. He was broke. He was impoverished. And so he thought to himself, I know what I'll do. I'll get a job out in the country. I know the farm. I know the ranch. I, I, I work cattle. And uh, so he goes out and he joins himself to a citizen of that land. And that word in the original meant to either join yourself to your wife or your husband or to a prostitute. And it was used of dust and mud that clings to the shoes. And so he joined himself to that citizen. And the guy says, well, what I need around here is somebody to take care of the pigs. And so this is the most disgusting thing possible for a Jewish kid. To work and slop the hogs and the pigs. And so he does that. He's sick. He's tired. And the farmer or the rancher does not give him any food. Uh, he wants to just scrounge what he can find. And he ends up eating the pods that the the bean pods that the pigs ate. How disgusting can you get? That's in the country after being in the city. Now maybe he thought, you know, I can't go home because I'll have to live off my brother's share of the estate, and he's a jerk. You'll find out how much he is. He doesn't want his father's rules or his brother's scorn. And the village society is ruthless with a man who has disgraced his family. They will taunt him in the streets like blind Bartimaeus. Jesus healed him. But his name was not Timaeus when he was born. That means filth in the derivation of the Hebrew language. Bar Timaeus means son of filth. The taunt name given by the people in the village where he lived or the city where he lived. They would give him a nickname. They would taunt him. They would run it into the ground. It would be humiliating to go home, he thinks. He is in absolute desperation. How far gone are you going to be, the country song says. A few years ago, we celebrated uh, my birthday, which is way up there. 
in Colorado, and the kid, our kids came in, and we rode the old narrow-gauge steam engine through the Royal Gorge. It's an, an incredible little trip. And there, in those steep walls carved by convicts from the Supermax prison in Canyon nearby, on the walls, as we were going by in the train, I very quickly saw something, and my eyes saw a verse from Proverbs. Written in chalk by one of the convicts that said, The way of the transgressor is hard. And it certainly is. It was for this young man. What happens when you get all that you thought you wanted, but you don't want what you have? And finally, the Bible says he awakened. This is a word for recovering from a coma. He woke up. He came to his senses. And here's the second idea. He asked that question, what's a guy like me doing in a place like this? When he repented of his sin, he came to himself. He awakened to a recognition of the world's emptiness. He thought it would fill the void in his life, but it only made the emptiness deeper. He saw that sin was not a flower, but a Frankenstein, not a toy, but a time bomb. He had gone as far as he could go. He had known the high life and now the low life, and his only friends are the pigs. What's your name? Oink. That'll do, pig. He is absolutely desperate. A lot of water had gone under the bridge, and a lot of bridges had gone under the water. But he came to himself, and he recognized that this is never going to satisfy. And then he awakened to a realization of the Father's fullness. He remembered that the day laborers had enough food to eat, and yet here he is, a son, he's dying of hunger. And so he says, I will go back and, and tell my father, make me one of the hired men. Now, to hire in the Middle East is a derogatory term, or at least it was then. You hire a teacher or an engineer, but you, I mean, you don't hire them, but you would hire a garbage collector. Or you'd hire someone to go out and do hard manual, manual labor in the field. But he's a hired man, a hired laborer, was never guaranteed a set wage. They would just be willing to come and work and hope that the landowner would be gracious enough to give them pay. They were not allowed in the house because they were expected to steal to make up for what was not paid. And yet he's saying, I'm willing to be a hired laborer, not even a son. The Bible is very clear that God has called us to something far greater. Jesus said, I have called you now friends and not just slaves. We're to have the commitment of a servant, but the companionship and the blessing and authority of a son.
Jesus said, I have placed you in a new position of authority and fullness and blessing. In Jeremiah 31, 14, God said, My people will be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. He richly supplies that we may be fully satisfied. And that's why 1 Timothy 6, 17 says, God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. You say, but Hayes, I'm not very wealthy. Why would he say all things to enjoy? Because 2 Peter 1.3 says that because of the partaking of the nature of Christ and because of our knowledge of Him, God gives us all things that we need for life and godliness. In other words, whatever you need to build and to grow the Christian life, God supplies it in Christ. He gives us the beauty and the glory of one of the greatest places to live on earth right here. The weather, the beach, the trees, the flowers, the temperature, except right now. <laughs> and, and God says, listen, I've given you all of this and way more. Because God says, I love you. I want you to have these things. In your Bible sometime, you might ought to just look for all that God is, all that He can do, and all that you can have and do because of who He is. Jesus said, I am. I love whenever Jesus would say that. In the Gospels, because He was identifying Himself as the Yahweh, the Jehovah of the Old Testament. He was and is God. And He is the one who said to Moses, I am that I am. An old country preacher said, he am always been, he am always going to be. He am. May not be great grammar, but he says, I am whatever you need. I am the door to those who are on the outside. I am the light to those who are in darkness. I am the way to those who are lost. I am the truth to those in error. I am the life to those who are dead. I am the good shepherd to those who are insecure. I am that I am. And most wonderfully, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Wow. He am. He am. He said in the storm as he walked on the water to the disciples, and they, they thought he was a ghost, but he said, do not be afraid. It is I. Literally, I am. I am your courage. I am your faith. I am your security. Even in the storm, I am. And then the young man awakened to repentance of sin's awfulness. Joy in the presence of the angels in heaven. Over one sinner who repents. Now, there is a right definition of repentance. Uh, we, don't, we don't like to talk about repentance. But it means literally to change your mind <clears throat> on the basis of new evidence. Have you done that? The evidence of the world's emptiness, the Father's fullness, and sin's awfulness. It is a change of mind about God. 
Acts 20, 21 speaks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he is not a foe but a friend. He's not a citizen of the far country. He is the Lord himself. He is not one of those fickle friends who leave you when you can't do anything for them. He is faithful and just to forgive and provide. Repentance toward God. It's a change of mind about sin. It puts you in the pig pen. And what God hates, we should hate. What sin was born by Christ on the cross, we should abhor and hate with all our hearts. Because that sin in your heart and mine had him go to the cross and endure that horror for us. Sin is awful. Sin breaks God's heart. It's a change of mind about our works. Hebrews 6.1 speaks about repentance from dead works. In other words, you change your mind and you turn from trying to earn your way into God's grace and forgiveness. You can't do enough to get God to love you. He loves you regardless of who you are and what you've done. No matter how far out you've gone. This is why I love what an old English friend of mine, Roy Hessian, said. It's a long way out, but a short way back. You may have taken months or years to drift away from God, but it's a, tri a trip to the cross and to the throne of grace in a simple prayer. It's a short way back. And that means that you have a right determination as well as the right definition of repentance. He said, I, I will arise and go to my Father. He could have just uh, wallowed in self-pity all through that time in the pig pen. But he said, I'm going home. I'm going to change Anything is better than this. He made that determination. He didn't blame the father, the pigs, the shallow friends, or his father. He said, I'm going home to him. And he had a prepared confession that he had made up. I will say to my father certain things. And he made the right statement, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's the very beginning. That humility that says, I don't deserve anything God could give. I don't deserve any restoration of position. I have sinned. I'm not worthy, God, to be your son. But it's a Simple casting of yourself on God. Now, the right direction is to the Father. If you've been alienated, just do it. Whatever it takes to get to God. Whatever you have to say or do, you need to repent. Now, this right direction is vertical and horizontal. It's vertical in that, as Hosea 14.2 says, take with you words and return to the Lord. 
It means that you confess with your words, with your heart as well, that you have sinned, that you're not worthy, and that you want and need and desire God's forgiveness. You don't deserve it. Take words and confess. But in your heart, it's a willingness to turn from that sin, and you go to God saying, Lord, this is my heart. I need you to make it happen. But it's also horizontal in that we confess with word, but we practice deeds of restoration and restitution. This is why there are so many who, who frankly, uh, don't have full repentance because they're not willing to make right what they've done wrong. They're, they're not willing to restore what they've taken or make restitution in the financial area or in the relationship. It's vertical and horizontal. Now, there's a, a, a powerful, important text that changed my very way of approaching people. I remember back at First Baptist some years ago, there was a leader in the church who we discovered was committing adultery. And he was uh, clearly in the wrong. There was no question about it. He admitted it. And uh, uh, there are those in his circle who wanted us to fully restore him to leadership. And so I realized I was at a crisis. Has this man truly repented? Can he truly be restored? And I discovered this passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. God talks about those who sorrow to repentance. Listen to this, though. In verse 11. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. As I dug into this, I realized, wait a minute. This is the evidence of true repentance. There's a sorrow that you've broken God's heart. There is an earnestness. You're willing to do whatever it takes to make this thing right. Godly sorrow, earnestness, vindication of yourselves. You want to be proven innocent in the matter. You want to uh, be restored. Uh, you, you're not half, half-hearted or casual about this. Indignation. You have a holy, righteous anger at the hurt that this has caused. A, a longing. You have a passion and a zeal. The Bible says, Jesus to the seven churches, be zealous and repent there in Revelation. Be zealous and repent. There's passion. There's zeal. There's earnestness. Avenging of wrong. We are the true avengers and the world will marvel at what they see in us that's a pun by the way if you don't know what I'm talking about 
you're probably over 18. <laughs> Avenging of wrong. It's not that you are getting vengeance, but you're willing to make it right, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes to overcome this wrong. Do you have that kind of sorrow to repentance? Tragically, that young man did not. And when we go to God, the Bible says in Proverbs 24, 16, a righteous man falls seven times, but rises again. In other words, listen, we're not perfect. We are going to sin. We are going to fall. We're going to slip and stumble. But God says we can rise again. We may be in the pig pen, but like the prodigal, we say, I will arise and go to my father. I'm not going to stay where I am. I'm only a step away from God in prayer. It's a long way out, but a short way back. This wonderful Englishman that I told you about, Roy Hessian, told me this amazing story. Years ago, his first wife, Revel, was riding with him in a car out in the English countryside. And they got into a discussion, and he said some angry, hurtful things to her. But because of his heart for God, he immediately confessed that sin and asked her to forgive him. And she did. Seconds later, they were blindsided by a truck at an intersection, and she was instantly killed. As he told me this heart-wrenching story, he said, Hayes, how glad I am. I repented before it was too late. And must, must we as well. And then lastly, the young man asked the question, what's a guy like me doing in a place like this when he received the Father's mercy? Now, meanwhile, a while back at the ranch, the Father has been looking and waiting and praying. The Scripture says in Psalm 145, 14, the Lord sustains all who fall, falls and raises up all who are bowed down. We fall, but we bow down in humility. And when the young man was headed home, the father had been praying for him, I believe. Now, as a rancher or a farmer, I think he had thrown that lasso of prayer around the boy's heart and tied the other end to his knees. And every time he knelt in prayer, he was pulling that boy a little closer to home. You may not have ever been around cattle, but I have. I could never rope a cow, just too hard. But you swing that lariat and, and you try to pop them and get them moving. The father had been praying. He is the initiator of mercy. And as that boy was getting closer, the father one day was out of the old RFD mailbox and he squinted his eyes. He recognized that walk, though the clothes were tattered, the face, the hair was different, it seemed like. But he recognized his son. And the Bible says he started running. He sprinted 
toward his son. The Bible says that. No man over 30 ever ran in the Middle East unless it was in a stadium in a race. And in order to run, he had to lift up those long robes exposing his undergarments, which was shame to the village. Thank God the father saw him before the villagers did. They sometimes would stone someone who came back who had disgraced the home like that. But he ran, and he fell on him. He hugged him. He embraced him. He was crying, and the young man chokes out his confession. His confession. He is the receiver, and the father is the initiator. He is the participator in mercy. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I've sinned against heaven and against you. But he doesn't finish it. He doesn't offer to be a hired man. You know why? He leaves his destiny in the hands of his father. The father made the first move toward us. Here in his love, not that we love God, but he first loved us, First John says. In two verses, in the same chapter, in chapter 4, verses 10 and 19, he initiated, he came to our world. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And Jesus went all the way naked before the world on a cross, dying for our sins that we would be forgiven. He made the first move. And our choice is to receive his mercy. His love is a vast ocean that fills the depths of our sin with his grace. You cannot go too far or too low in that ocean. And the son receives what the father has given. The father says to the servants, quick, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. A ring on his hands and shoes on his feet. He's not a servant. He's not a day laborer. This my son was lost and is found. He was dead but alive. Let's celebrate. Kill the fatted calf. What a party. Over one sinner who repents. Thank God. How many times do we have to go back to God? Return to the Lord, the Word says. And one day I'm going to walk in God's golden city. And I'm going to look around and I'm going to say, what's a guy like me doing in a place like this? And the voice is the sound of many waters will say, this my son was lost, but he's found. He was dead in trespasses and sin, but is alive again forevermore. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer, please? You may be saying, what's a guy or what's a gal like me doing in a church like this? What am I doing here? God brought you here in an appointment and not an accident. God is drawing you to himself. And all of us can come to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in time of need.
Our praise team is going to sing. I'm going to ask our prayer counselors and encouragers to come and stand here and be available at the front. I'm going to ask that you keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Let's get right with God right now. You say, but Pastor I, or Hayes, I'm, uh, I haven't done anything bad. I haven't squandered my estate. I haven't gone off into the far country. Well, but you are a backslider in heart, perhaps. You don't have the love for God you once did. Your zeal for souls and passion for prayer has cooled off into ashes. You need to get right with the Father. The Father of mercies, the Bible says. So let's pray. Let's do business with God. And if you need to come and pray with someone, they're coming. They're right down here. And I'm going to be here. Sing praise to